All right, everybody, it's um, it's three o'clock here on the East Coast. Um, thanks for joining us today. Uh, we uh, it occurred to us as we got together as a team to prepare for this um, that we didn't meet last week. So we are opening up a fire hose of information <laughs> that we're about to launch your way. And you may have already seen our, our updates or in, in the committee meetings that you're having, but we just wanted to be a bit more comprehensive right now. Um, and, and what we're going to try to do, we're going to focus on thinking about the topics categorically because we have some things that have entered our environment that may fit in the stimulus package or may fit in the transportation package or may fit in the various um, things that are moving along in Congress right now. We just want to kind of separate those for the moment so that you guys have a better understanding of what your ask is for your delegation when you make the research at, at the outreach or that when you re reach out again to your various networks um, that you two can um, put them into categories so that um, together we're able to advance our mutual objectives um, with our congressional representatives and with the administration as as programs develop through the um, through the CARES Act and in future legislation moving forward. Um, so the contemporaneous information has come up to us, uh, has come out largely this week, some last week. Um, it's a little maddening because the um, technically the Senate and the House um, are on recess. They're in on recess, which technically means, you know, they're back at home. But the four major things that we're going to cover today are number one, the stimulus efforts. Um, the ball has now been tossed over to the Senate and we're going to talk specifically about what the Senate is looking at and the timing on that. Um, transportation package, um, which includes the House Passed Moving Forward Act. We're going to talk about the House transportation efforts and the Senate transportation efforts. And then we're going to talk about development of information through the grants or um, the coronavirus relief fund, which is not a grant. Um, the information that we've received, which has been updated um, pretty consistently and last the market. Um, so as we uh, talk through each one of those, we're going to also give you a sense of timing on each. Um, and hopefully we're able to answer your questions, but we're certainly happy to answer questions at the end. Please feel free to use the um, use the chat box as as much as you'd like. And so with that, I'd like to turn it over to Maureen to cover first our police education and CRF efforts. Thank you, Emily. So I'm going to start off with some updates on education. We saw a lot unfold around education this week. Um, President Trump threatened to pull back federal funds for schools if they didn't fully reopen for the fall semester. And he was backed by uh, the Secretary of Education, Betsy Davos. Davos. I think it's Davos. However, a couple hours later, Davos gave a different statement where she said um, they were not suggesting pulling back funding from education. And in, instead, if schools don't reopen, um, then they'll simply possibly allow families to take the money and make decisions on their own regarding their child's education. So there's been a lot of back and forth um, going on with the topic of funding. So following this, there were a lot of questions centered on the safety concerns of reopening schools, especially in states with rising coronavirus cases. And yesterday, the CDC director came out and said that in his opinion, keeping schools closed would be more damaging to children than reopening them. 
but many education associations have said that there simply isn't enough um, funding to safely reopen schools. So the questions were usually centered around the safety concerns of reopening schools. And it's really just a back and forth on, you know, how do we how do we get these kids back to school if there's rising cases? And there really hasn't been much of an answer on that, especially with the back and forth on funding. So um, moving on from that, the pressure to reopen schools is impacting universities pretty badly as well. On July 6th, we put out a new rule stating that international students must attend classes in person. And if they're unable to do so because the university is only offering online classes, then they have to leave the country. And this was met with a lot of backlash and the federal government was hit with a lawsuit from big ones like Harvard, MIT, um, and most recently the University of California. Um, we might see a couple more universities take action against it in the coming weeks, so it will be interesting to see um, what's going to happen from there. Um, the concerns are really raised on how this rule can impact higher education and even the economy as a whole, given how colleges and universities are already dealing with a lot of financial challenges and the impact this rule could have on international student enrollment um, and how it could be de detrimental to colleges and universities. Um, this rule completely changes the guidance that was given for the spring semester when the pandemic first started, where there was a lot of flexibility being offered to ensure the continuity of educational programs. Um, so that's it for education. We're going to keep track of where this goes and possibly if there's going to be any changes with how much funding is going to come in for it. Um, and then for police reform regarding, oh, thank you. I am now the presenter. <laughs> So, sorry, moving on to police reform. Earlier this week, House Democrats proposed a spending bill for fiscal year 2021 in which they allotted $596 million in funding to support reform groups in the bill that they had introduced. And the funding is broken down into going toward increasing independent investigations of law enforcement, federal investigations into police misconduct, training for law, local law enforcement on best practices, civilian review boards, and improving community policing. The availability of these funds will, of course, help the reform, but the penalty of missing out on federal funding remains for states if they fail to update their rules to align with the new reform, such as banning chokeholds and no-knock warrants. And losing out on this funding would be um, would have a pretty big impact on state and local governments, as we already know. Um, and then regarding the Senate, we know that the Senate's version of the bill didn't make it past the House, but this week, Senator Tim Scott did say that he's been talking with House Democrats and there seems to be hope in reviving the bill with possible adjustments. So um, you can expect some updates on that in the coming weeks. Moving on to the CRF, Coronavirus Relief Fund. In the last two weeks, we received two revisions of the FAQs and one revision of the guidance from the Department of the Treasury. On June 24th, the Department of Treasury updated the guidance on the FAQs, adding clarification on questions about eligibility of funds for nonprofits, the Stafford Act, application procedures for marketing, new processing capacity, and public safety payroll expenses. Then on June 30th, Treasury updated this year of guidance, where they clarified the definition of cost incurred. And then on July 8th, the FAQs were updated once again with one more addition answering a question on administrative leave costs. And on that note, we are getting a lot more examples of CRF spending plans. And again, you can find these uploaded on GFOA CRF form. 
And I'll leave a link to that again in the chat box in case you don't already have access to it. And this is something we do and will continue to update regularly. We have also been hosting our weekly CRF meetings on Mondays, and there have been a series of questions that have come up among our members. So I'm going to turn it over to Emily to expand on those and talk about some of the key things. Thanks, Maureen. So um, yeah, we've been having our Monday uh, check-ins uh, for Coronavirus Relief Fund eligible recipients. Um, generally, there's between, you know, a couple hundred people um, participating on that. A lot of great participation from Tim Yule in California. Got to give you a big shout out there. Um, lots and lots of questions still about the new guidance and FAQs that kind of have been coming out contemporaneously. I mean, as soon as we're kind of done thinking about a certain topic, another round of FAQs come out. Um, and I, I do have to say the guidance um, that was updated. So there are two different documents. First is FAQs, frequently asked questions. The second is the guidance. The guidance is the most important because it's an administration's interpretation of the legislative text. So when we say the guidance was updated to address insured expenditures, that's kind of a big deal because it's the Treasury now saying that we can't flip-flop anymore between the terms <laughs> incurred expense and expenditure because there's a significant difference between the two and they were continuing to flip-flop back and forth in their guidance and it was causing havoc um, between the states and the local governments who are recipients. So they made it very clear, especially when we do have a window closing on December 30th, for spending those funds. So you have to be very clear about what it means to spend those funds when. Um, and so the guidance has been a very welcome relief uh, for a lot of folks who received the CRF. Now, in terms of sort of the general questions that we're mulling through in um, the Coronavirus Relief Fund Local Government Forum, um, lots of questions about uh, timing. Um, we had heard rumors that there were going to be quarterly reports uh, to the Treasury Office of the Inspector General. Um, and a lot of us were kind of sitting on the phone saying, well, <laughs> we feel like it's kind of been a quarter. Our, you know, our year end closes June 30th. When are these quarterly reports going to be due? We finally got that information uh, just this week from the office of the, I'm sorry, late last week from the office of the inspector general and happened to be Thursday afternoon that a lot of eligible entities received it. And I'll go ahead and stick that link in here. Um, what the uh, office of the inspector general um, now is providing is categorical buckets of, uh, of how the coronavirus relief fund may be spent. Um, they also say we expect for quarterly reports uh, to be due at regular intervals. The first quarterly report will be due on July 17th. So for those of you who are eligible entities, I would mark that on your calendar if you haven't already. Um, the OIG is expecting a report um, of the expenditures of the coronavirus relief funds by July 17th. Um, the other thing that came in uh, the FAQs that were updated throughout the uh, several times throughout the past couple of weeks is finally we have an answer about the use of uh, coronavirus relief funds to be spent on the FEMA state or local match. Um, it, 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 according to the FAQs, 
states and local jurisdictions may in fact use coronavirus relief funds on the match for FEMA funds, which is kind of a big deal because now it actually prioritizes in some ways FEMA over CRF, you you have a match incentive um, in order to prioritize that for your jurisdiction. Not saying that's a best practice. I'm just saying that's what's listed or that's that's sort of the sequence that is suggested through the FAQs. Um, and then last but not least, there are still, still questions um, and, and not exactly complete resolution about dedicating personnel to the official or uh, to the use of, of the coronavirus relief fund. So by that, I mean, um, there are two different ways that the FAQs have referred to using personnel costs. The first is either you are changing the responsibilities of a public sector person. So let's say you are changing the responsibilities of a teacher to become a nurse to handle the COVID crisis, um, that in and of itself, and it is unbudgeted technically, then that in and of itself is a eligible use of the coronavirus relief funds. In the second category, what they've been talking about is quote unquote, a substantial dedication of time to the coronavirus public health crisis. Um, we've asked the Treasury many times. He is, um, and many times we've gotten the answer that it's more than half of their time is a substantial dedication. Now, then the next question, of course, is well, those salaries were budgeted, they weren't unbudgeted. So, therefore, we should be able to use coronavirus relief funds on those personnel costs. All of these things, I just want you to say, we are noodling them. I just want to tell you, we are noodling them on Mondays. Um, we don't have final answers, but we certainly talk about best practices between and among our members. Um, and also in the perspective of now that we have the memo and guidance from uh, the Office of the Inspector General, we're going to talk specifically about categorization of those funds um, on next Monday or, or rather Monday after the weekend. Um, so those are the key themes that kind of keep up, keep coming up in the coronavirus relief fund in terms of timing with CRF. Uh, we're in the throes of it. Um, there are state statutes now that have been established. Some of them are a reimbursement model. Some of them have already distributed the funds. Um, some have uh, windows of spending that close on October 30th or October 1st. Some are a bit more luxurious for uh, the subrecipients to be able to spend until the end of December. Um, we're seeing a lot of differentiation across the country. And um, this uh, coming together on Mondays is a useful opportunity to talk about that. I'm certainly happy to, to put you all on, on that call as well. But those are the, the conversations happening around the coronavirus relief fund. Um, and with that, I want to close the CRF book and hand it over to Michael Thomas, who's going to be talking about legislative matters, start us off on the legislative uh, discussion, uh, specifically regarding the appropriations process that's happening right now in the House. There we go. Thank you so much, Emily. Okay, as you had uh, stated earlier in the call, you know, we want to kind of categorize the different pieces of legislation that have been moving through. And over the past uh, two, three, maybe four months, um, we've seen just more and more pieces of legislation bills kind of pegged to the, uh, uh, the, the bulletin board without them being fully addressed uh, by, by one side of, of Congress or just being mired in general. 
uh, in, in debate and uh, uh, triage of, of priorities. Now, I think in April sometime when there was uh, talk about the original uh, drafts of the transportation authorization bills that we'll talk about a little bit later in the call, uh, we had a little discussion about, you know, the appropriations process, uh, how authorizations work with that, what the differences are and, and what they mean for state and local governments, kind of how it all uh, uh, plays in together there. Uh, so as they promised back in June, uh, the leaders in the House and specifically the Appropriations Committee, uh, they have kept their promise of a very, very busy July uh, of trying to deal with this uh, a collision of dealing with uh, more stimulus aid, uh, police reform, and then just your standard annual uh, appropriations process, which, you know, aside from uh, unprecedented exogenous factors, is generally the most important thing that Congress kind of does every year. Uh, so where, where do we stand now and, and what's going to be happening over the, the next coming months before we kind of hit the, um, well, we run out of time, uh, come at the end of September when we reset our fiscal year and why does that matter for appropriations uh, versus uh, the authorization bills and the stimulus bills that we've been talking about? Uh, 12 of 12, uh, what you call 302B allocation bills in the subcommittees for the Committee on Appropriations had action this week after there being virtually zero recorded action prior. Uh, right now, uh, there actually could be markups for two of the subcommittee, uh, subcommittee bills right now. Uh, and through into next week, uh, that is when I imagine, because they don't really have much of a choice, they'll proceed with uh, their full committee markups and their full committee votes uh, to have it waiting for the Senate uh, once they return. So the way that these, these allocations uh, sort of work, uh, appropriations every year will say, this is our discretionary spending cap. This is what's going to fund all of the federal agencies and all of the programs that are ultimately funded by, by federal dollars. Excuse me, can never escape allergies. Um, typically speaking, you'll have a budget resolution every year that sort of sets that cap and the 12 uh, subcommittees as a part of the Appropriations Committee will sort of work backwards from there and, and get their numbers straightened out. Of course, they are working with the uh, separate committees that have jurisdiction over the authorization of the very monies that the appropriators are doling out. Uh, but generally, you work inside the brackets of, of your statutory law, which in this case is going to be budget control acts and bipartisan budget acts that go all the way back from 2011 uh, to now. This is all to say that uh, previous legislation has uh, given Congress the legal authority to set a discretionary cap without actually having a, a budget resolution passed. That is a process called deeming. We don't need to get into the uh, 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 vernacular of Congress because it's mostly nonsensical, but it basically is a way to use previous legislation to expedite what we're doing now so that we don't have to run into a, a, a bad situation come September and October. We're sussing out the differences a little bit more here. We're going to talk uh, again here in a few minutes about the transportation authorization bills. Uh, there are two of them that have been passed uh, by both chambers back in 2019, uh, I, I believe it's America's Infrastructure Act was passed by the Senate. And then just earlier this week, uh, we had passage of the Moving Forward Act, which included the Invest Act, which is the House side uh, reauthorization bill for transportation. Both of those bills would authorize funds out, I believe it's five years. So here's your main difference. Those authorization bills are saying, this is what we want and this is what we expect. And that can include programs that are being uh, authorized for the first time and are getting 
funding authorizations for several years. Uh, appropriations is what you are getting for this year. And that is it. So when you, you know, to kind of get it down to an accounting and budgetary level, when you're looking at it, uh, budget authorization is what happens on the authorization bills with the, the Invest Act, the America's Infrastructure Act. Outlays are what appropriations actually work with. And that's what you have to get every single year. So that's what makes the Appropriations Committee so unbelievably powerful is that at the end of the day, they're the ones who say, it's great that you have this authorization for this program, but we disagree with the program. So we're actually not gonna appropriate any funds towards it. And that's where the term uh, unfunded mandate basically comes from. Uh, and most uh, uh, Congresses will have, uh, will have legislation that's sort of littered with that sort of thing. Uh, that's uh, sort of gets into uh, legislation that's more symbolic. Uh, but I digress. Uh, appropriators, they are the, the end of the line holders of the purse. And that's what makes it so important because in those committee discussions, in those markups, before it even gets to the full committee vote, that's when you're going to have uh, amendments brought in. That's when you're going to have wish lists brought in, uh, which is what we're, we're seeing with today and early next week with the Senate. Uh, it's, a, it's a very, very important time. And it couldn't be more um, complicated and made more complex by all of the other you know, exogenous factors and the time crunch. Uh, so speaking of time crunch, what we're looking at uh, over the, the next couple, three weeks, the Senate has uh, concluded their, their business until the week of July 20th. The House will remain uh, in session through next week, and that is when we're going to see all of those House appropriations um, going to uh, a full committee vote. Um, and once that occurs, they're basically laying it out for the Senate and saying, all right, everything's here. When you get back on the 20th or the week of the 20th, you know, we can go ahead and start what is uh, ultimately negotiations to see if you can get to a budget compromise and uh, sort of shore up those gaps between the two chambers to eventually move that over to be signed uh, by the president. Now, if you uh, track the appropriations process, um, you know, letter by letter, uh, the House side, flurry of involvement, they're getting things done this week and the next. The Senate literally has nothing on paper. Um, this is not to say that they don't have plans or haven't had negotiations, discussions. Uh, they are uh, um, very much sort of laying in wait uh, to see what uh, the what work is yielded from House appropriators and then hopefully to bridge those gaps. Uh, I, I wish there was uh, more um, tease to uh, leaves to sort of read here for what the Senate may be doing, uh, what Mitch McConnell may be thinking. Uh, he has been a little bit vague on, yes, we, we do think a stimulus bill is coming. We're, we're not quite sure when, hopefully end of summer, it's going to be focusing on this. It's going to be focusing on that. Uh, often, you know, there just isn't, uh, we aren't engaging in the public debate between uh, the two chambers uh, uh, very effectively is, I suppose, the way I would put it. Uh, so what comes in August uh, remains to be seen. But the next two weeks or the next probably six to seven legislative days will be critical for the House and shoring up the rest of their appropriations and getting their votes through. Then the time after that is going to be laying in wait for the Senate and then probably shifting some attention uh, to working with the funds that we have out now for relief aid and beginning to uh, compromise and negotiate on the funding bills uh, that'll, be, that'll be coming here. So uh, that said, I hope that that provides a good delineation uh, for one thing that's going on in, sort of in the background with authorizations and appropriations and how that works. Obviously, uh, we, we have many other types of legislations that are moving through and to continue uh, analysis and update here, we're gonna go over to uh, Mr. Bellarmino, if you wanna take it from here. All right, thank you, Michael. Uh, and so as Michael mentioned, 
there's and, and Emily alluded to there's a lot of parallel tracks of work that's happening and of course uh, Michael mentioned uh, the legislative days which uh, even though we're still in mid close to mid July you know that window is actually narrowing when you look at the rest of the year especially given uh, the expected August recess that both chambers are going to go out on and then of course you've got elections coming up so they'll be in and out a few times uh, come the fall which again narrows down the time for some of this other work now going to the stimulus or the potential next stimulus package we talked a little bit about it uh, before as far as what the senate was going to do now uh, just as a quick refresher of course you know you know the house we, we talked about what the house passed a few weeks ago uh, they passed uh, the HEROES Act. Um, we know essentially that's a non-starter in the Senate. And a few weeks ago, um, we, you know, we heard uh, Majority Leader McConnell basically, you know, wanting to put a pause on any kind of quick action because they were taking a wait and see approach as far as whether, you know, what the jobs numbers may look like and what, you know, cases even look like from the, the, the virus uh, spread. And unfortunately, we, we do still find ourselves in the midst of the pandemic, and we are seeing, as many of you have seen, uh, some of the cases are increasing in, in states, putting into question uh, and maybe even putting into pause, you know, some of the reopening plans. Now, um, it's important, of course, uh, that, you know, the House passed its bill. We think the Senate is actually going to take up a package. And whether they do or not within the next two weeks, that still means that because they, you know, the package is likely going to differ from what the House passed, there will still need to be an effort to try to reconcile those differences and, and still come to an agreement to get something across the finish line. So at least what we know at this point. We know a few days ago, of course, the administration even indicated they're willing to consider uh, a, a, you know, a trillion dollar package. Uh, Majority Leader McConnell signal, still signals, as he did a few weeks ago, that he's open for a discussion as far as what this package may look like. Uh, as, uh, even as of, as of a few days ago, his priorities that he outlined was that he still wants to have some sort of liability relief for businesses, healthcare providers, universities and schools, uh, there may be there. There has been some discussion of, of, about around another round of stimulus checks, although it may be much more narrow as far as who may be getting those checks. Uh, and of course, there's still a discussion on additional unemployment assistance, uh, which, as you may know, that the federal boost to that benefit expires at the end of this month. Um, the other thing we know uh, that. Uh, was happening this week is that uh, Majority Leader McConnell was actually gathering or is in the process of gathering the wish list from the Republican caucus uh, in the Senate. And so what's going to be on those wish lists, uh, you know, we're not sure. Um, of course, you know, we do see a, a lot of discussions as far as um, additional funding, but um, we also, again, see, you know, what could what they could try to enact to help uh, folks out there who are actually really struggling from an economic standpoint. Um, so again, we know that they're working on gathering some wish lists, or at least wish lists from uh, caucus members, but that still leaves the question of, of what this additional aid to state and local governments could look like, because that question is still unanswered. 
And right now, at least in the Senate, the SMART Act that we've highlighted several times is still one of the few that actually has a starting number, and that's that $500 billion number. Um, Majority Leader uh, McConnell still hasn't really indicated uh, where he would be comfortable with starting as far as a, a you know, starting point for that number. And honestly, we still have not shaken off because we still have seen this come up in discussions recently. We still haven't shaken off the argument that maybe just increasing the flexibility in the use of the funds that are already out there from the CARES Act will be enough to help state and locals. So two things real quick I want to bring to your attention, uh, and Maureen, if you could pull up on your screen. Uh, today, we actually uh, sent up to the full Senate a letter from GFOA President Marion G, uh, where we are calling on the Senate to, to act swiftly and, and help state and local governments, both in their efforts to continue their COVID-19 response, as well as to get the economy going. So essentially, the letter points out that, you know, in order to continue that COVID-19 response and, and to deal with the impact that, you know, that we're still feeling right now, the letter points out, you know, calling for additional funding as well as increased flexibility to deal with that revenue loss. And then with respect to trying to jumpstart the economy, um, we're calling on, you know, some of the uh, municipal bond enhancement um, provisions that we've that have been part of GFOA's priorities for some time now to, to add that into the toolkit. So of course, restore advanced refunding and, and increasing the BQ limit. Now we mentioned this, of course, uh, because you know this is certainly something that we know, um, and I'll talk to this in a little bit here, and Emily will jump in in a second here. But when it comes to advanced refunding, uh, we're aware, or at least we believe, that Senator Wicker, who is our Republican champion, at least for that bill, uh, will likely be including that on his wish list. So, um, you know, this is unfortunately this is one of those times where you know. If it has a one in a million chance, then you're saying you got a shot. Um, so, as far as you know, trying to get all these, you know, the wish list together, it, well, it, it, time will only tell, or will only show what uh, the senators are going to include. So, we did point that out again, as far as the the two pronged objective of continuing the response against uh, the spread of the virus, but also, you know, trying to get the economy going again. And we know that, you know, infrastructure investment is one of those ways to do that. And so I'll switch gears just a second here and point to the member alert on the website. So, Marine, if I can ask you to pull that up. Uh, for some of you, you may have seen both in the newsletter and as you've gone to the new GFOA website, uh, at the top, we now have a, a member alert banner that will let you, um, essentially that's where we'll be posting most of our member alerts now. And all you need to do is you got to just click on the learn more. And here's where we kind of get into, again, during this two-week recess that your senators are back home, we're just urging members, GFOA members, to reach out and contact, whether it's reaching out through their uh, Washington, D.C. office or their offices back home, uh, just reaching out to their staff and, and letting, them the, letting them know it's critical for the Senate to act right now uh, to, to provide that additional aid and to help with some of the other uh, enhancement tools that will help you know, jumpstart the economy. So we provide a few talking points on the additional aid, and then we provide links to the SMART Act so you can take a look at, you know, the text uh, of the bill. 
And then we get into the advanced refunding uh, because, of course, you know, thankfully we, we do have a bill now in the Senate. And like I said before, it's a small chance, uh, but certainly, you know, we'll try to take the shot, especially if we know that champions like Senator Worker will be throwing it on his list. And so I will point out real quick uh, on this on the alert page, uh, there's a template letter that you can download specifically on advanced refunding, customize it to, you know, match what your jurisdiction um uh, you know, with information from your jurisdiction. And then we have, uh, of course, a, a link to contact your senator. So provide information as far as what the numbers uh, are and emails to reach out to their Washington, D.C. and district offices. So with that, I will uh, turn it over back over to Emily to give us a little bit more on what's happening with advanced refunding. Oh, really quick. Before you stop, sh stop, stop sharing. Um, that just to be clear, the template letter is um, right at that button download. So if you scroll down a little bit, Maureen, um, that download button will open up a template letter for your jurisdiction that you can just kind of plug and play. Um, and we can't see it because you're not sharing Word, which is totally fine, but just know a Word document will pop up. <laughs> you can just put in your information and let it rip. Um, and we're also very happy to provide you with um, staff information, staff emails, staff phone numbers that would help get you to the right person. So, um, so that's the stimulus effort. That's going to happen in the next three weeks. That trillion dollar figure seems to be a figure that Mitch McConnell is very excited and committed to. Um, the other, I know you come here for. Um, I know you come here for good political gossip and I've got some for you. Um, that trillion dollar figure, when it comes out, probably will not have state and local government aid attributed to it. I think what's gonna happen is the Senate's gonna put in, you know, if they have um, airports or, or PPP or a new type of program or, or individual stimulus checks, we'll see those. Um, but what's really important, a really important thought exercise at that point in time is to stop and say, all right, how much have they taken up of that trillion dollar figure? Um, because the net of it will likely go to state and local government. So if it gets filled up with wish lists that are outside of state and local governments, then that's a real problem. Another thing that I've heard is that with stimulus efforts, um, you know, again, the caucus is being very careful about narrowing what the th what the fourth stimulus is going to look like. Um, and so while they're kind of exploring options that would give issuers tools in the toolkit to save money, um, some of the Senate finance folks are starting to say, well, if we give you back advance refunding, that's gonna cost us about $13 billion. Can we net that out of direct aid? Um, to which all of our heads explode at the same time and we say, no, <laughs> that is not what we're asking here. Um, so in, in, in the spirit of collaboration with national governors, state treasurers, um, with NLC and NACO, um, it's important that we push first always for direct aid. Um, and the reason for that is because we actually have a second bite at the apple. I hate to say it because this is the closest we've come to getting advanced refunding back. 
But the second bite at the apple is going to be when the Senate reconvenes in September and they have to deal with the Transportation Reauthorization Act. So if you recall on June 30th, the House passed what's called the Moving Forward Act. And you know, last call that we were on, we were just absolutely giddy because in the Moving Forward Act, it was a cornucopia of bond provisions. It was advanced refunding, bank qualified debt, increasing the caps on private activity bonds. It was um, bringing back direct pay subsidy bonds similar to BAVs. I mean, you name it, they had it in there and it was $1.5 trillion and we were absolutely giddy. Now they handed that package, they passed that package over to the Senate and the Senate is saying, you know what? That's our second priority right now. Our first priority is stimulus. That's gonna happen in July. Then we're gonna go on a recess in August. And when we come back in September, we're gonna tackle the transportation problem. Um, what's very exciting is that we do have an advanced refunding bill, standalone bill, in the Senate. So Senator Wicker out of Mississippi and Senator Stabenow out of Michigan are our bipartisan sponsor, co-sponsors on that. We actually have four Republicans and four Democrats on that bill, which gives it as likely a shot again as it has ever had because we have a bipartisan, bicameral advance refunding bill. Um, we also got what's called the score back. The score is something that the federal government does to make a determination of how much they have to pay in order to provide that uh, benefit or that subsidy um, from their perspective. And the score came back lower than it ever has been scored. So it came back at $13 billion. So we have really good feelings about where we are with advance refunding. We just have to make sure that we're clear when the Senate is talking about stimulus efforts, if it is additive, please add in advance refunding. But if it doesn't make it into the stimulus bill, we do have a shot in September. And you might ask, all right, Emily, is it like September to who knows when to February? I mean, like how long are they gonna be talking about transportation? Well, technically the Transportation Reauthorization Act has to be complete by the end of October. Um, so again, they have to pass that transportation bill within 60 days of coming back. And they are certainly going to be sure to um, make certain that they are passing that Transportation Reauthorization Act because <laughs> what happens after October? November, <laughs> which is a critical month around here. And they all want to make sure that they have something that they did for their constituency that they can take back and say, look what I did. I've made um, the stimulus happen. I've made transportation reauthorization happen. Um, the other thing that has come back in the Senate, Senator Wicker out of Mississippi again, um, he introduced what's called the American Infrastructure Bonds Act. Um, that is another iteration of Build America bonds. So these are the direct pay subsidy bonds that are taxable bonds. When they were issued during ARA, they were generally issued, issued by the larger issuers 
um, because that made sense. It made sense for them because of the um, subsidy rate that was attached to them. And that was a 35% direct pay subsidy rate. Since those bonds were issued due to sequestration, that subsidy rate has been chipped away. So a lot of GFOA members and certainly debt committee members, I think they collectively throw up their hands every time I mention BABS. <laughs> but but I, I think that we have these, I, I see Kathy Cardell, <laughs> no more BABS. Um, we have this opportunity where they're saying, all right, here's, um, here's a new round of BABS. And to which uh, GFOA is saying, I think that another tool in the toolkit is great, but if it costs the federal government money, number one, it's a political non-starter. But number two, if that sequestration chips away at the subsidy, then no issuers are going to have uh, as rapid a take as they did in the past with Build America bonds. So unless there's protection against sequestration, then we can't, we support it in some ways, but we're certainly not throwing our full weight behind it. The strategy now is to talk with uh, Senator Crapo out of Idaho to see if we can't bring back bank qualified. Uh, legislation just to raise the BQ ceiling from 10 million to 30 million um, and then to peg it to inflation thereafter and to make sure that uh, the bank qualified rate is set at the borrower, not necessarily the issuer, um, so that it can be used most effectively. That's where we are with transportation. We obviously have a tight time frame, probably starting in early September through October but it will be highly, highly politicized. And we stand very, very well um, with bipartisan, bicameral efforts on our part. Um, and we're going to make sure to have various pushes in order to include advanced refunding if it doesn't make it into um, the, the stimulus efforts into the next round of transportation discussions. Um, that's transportation reauthorization. One last thing I wanted to say uh, really quickly, because we had so many updates on uh, the municipal liquidity facility uh, leading up to now, we talked about it. This is the facility that was stood up by the Federal Reserve Bank. Um, it uh, is up to $500 billion in loans to larger states and or municipals inside states to a maximum of two borrowers inside of states. And they've opened up the facility to what are called revenue bond issuers, or they call them RBIs, but a maximum of two in each state. Um, so you may be asking yourself, well, that's really great. It's been opened <laughs> to all these different types of entities. Still, right now we are sitting at only one borrower in the MLF, um, and that is the state of Illinois. Illinois issued, I think, 1.2 billion, if I'm not mistaken, um, and it was for a 24-month bond. So um, there you have it. I think that other jurisdictions are curious about using the MLF. I think that a lot of people are looking at Illinois and their experience and certainly talking with Illinois and their experience. But the way that they have the pricing right now, it just doesn't jive with a whole lot of folks as they're looking at their options for issuing in the market, which has very favorable pricing right now. 
as compared to what the municipal liquidity facility is uh, staying in. So, so that's where we are with the MLF. And um, with that, I just want to turn it back over to Maureen to see if there's any questions. There are no questions. A lot of strong comments there. Um, we can give it maybe 10 seconds. If anyone has a question. Going once, going twice. Back to you, Emily. Awesome. Well, I am uh, just delighted that we ran through as much as we did and as <laughs> little time as we did. If you have any other questions, I've already signed up at least four of you into the CRF local government forum for Mondays. If you if you think about it and you'd like to join, just let me know. I just pop you over into the, um, the WebEx. Um, if you have any um, letters uh, or information for any staffers that you'd like to get in touch with, I've gotten a couple of private texts on the chat. I'm certainly happy to put you in touch with the right people. Also, very, very, very happy, very happy for your outreach efforts over the next week and of the past week. It takes us a million, million, million miles. And if you do send them, if you could just copy Mike or Thomas or Marine or I, um, we will follow up personally with the staffers in that office to make sure that they saw the letter. So thanks everyone for your outreach and for your participation. Have a great weekend.